You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everyone. Uh, I am starting us off this week. And Yay. what do you have for us, Rachel? To me. <laughs> uh, this was suggested to me by several friends of mine um, because they know I do this podcast. I'm like, this is weird. And it's been circulating a lot more on social media recently. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of background and then go into some specifics. Um, so okay. I, this week I'm talking about white naped cranes. Now, do either of you, Kirk, oh, all right. do you know about white naped cranes at all? Uh, they are crane uh, with a white nape. Yeah, that's my understanding You're, as no, well. I, I really don't. I don't know anything about them. You're okay. You're not wrong. You're actually very correct. Good job. Yes. Um, Bonus points. So this is a threatened bird species in the crane family. Um, right. They are about forty-four to forty-nine inches long, like their body from their chest to like their tail. Um, not including okay. the head and the but neck. From, not including the head and the neck. No. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. That's so big. But. They are about 4.3 feet tall, like with their neck standing straight up. So, yeah, they're a large bird. Not as, um, not like as large point, as Rachel, though. Like, no. Yeah, I'm I was going to say, I was gonna say like a, point eight ra- of a, of a point 0.8 of a Rachel, maybe? 0.8? Yeah, that's about, about right. that. Somewhere in there? Okay. Yeah. Good. I think, I think we're all on board. Cool. Uh, they weigh about 12 pounds. They have pinkish legs, a gray and white. Like, their body is mostly gray and then it goes up into their neck and they have like a white several white stripes on the back of their neck so they have a gray and white stripe on the neck. on do you, do you mean on the the nape of their yes. neck yes on the nape of their <laughs> neck. okay good just, just clarifying uh they also have a red patch right over their eyes so red on their face uh okay they breed in northeastern mongolia and china they're found in various parts all over uh eastern yeah, east. Yes, Eastern Asia. Um, mm-hmm. And fun fact: they are the only cranes found in South Korea. Okay. Okay. Uh, they actually can be found. I feel in like the there is a zone. lot more to this story coming. Oh, oh, there is. <laughs> um, okay. So, like most cranes, they have a courtship dance with each other, and they have a unison call that sounds kind of like if you take a rubber chicken and have it squawk. yeah i gotcha uh and they mate for life generally speaking um and females are the ones to initiate the display now males and females look the same but this is where we get to our story (laughs) okay Mm -hmm. okay so at the smithsonian conservation biology institute in 2004 there is a a keeper that was brought in. That has just started the job, right? Uh, and oh. his name was Chris Crow. I saw this. I you saw know this. what this is, yeah. Uh, and he truly, 
truly uh, found new meaning to the words uh, on the application, duties as assigned. I see. Other duties as assigned. Uh-huh. Right. Kurt, have you well, heard this just, story at well, all? Let's pause for a moment, though. I, I just have to point out the amazing nominative determinism of a guy named Chris whose Crow. last name is Crow. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I have not heard. I have not heard. I about mean, the story, his last so name I'm, could have been Crane. <laughs> that would have been that, that would have been better. Yep. Um, so he's in charge of like a number of birds, uh, like seventeen crow or wow. 17 cranes, not crows. <laughs> um, <laughs> there it is. And uh, some other species at the Institute. Um, but in 2004, the, a new bird was brought into the Institute. Uh, she was genetically, she was a genetically valuable white-naped crane. And she was 23 years old and she had not once produced a single okay. chick. Um, and so Chris Crow was put in charge Oof, of okay. this uh, bird. She had been known as uh, kind of a difficult uh-huh. bird uh, at being a crane, and she had somewhat of a reputation um, coming into this. She was born in 1982 in July, and um, mm-hmm. well, her name is Walnut, and the rumor going around right. when she comes into the Institute is that she had two potential male suitors at different times at other zoos and they were found that tried to engage her in dance um in courtship and were found dead now this is Ooh. oh my this has not been proven uh it's just a rumor yeah. and no no zoos because they are uh a vulnerable species want to fess up or own up to having lost any uh, birds <laughs> Um, well, hold on. They, there'd be records of the fact that the bird, like, died, though. Yeah. You know, think people just don't want to admit how it died? Yeah. Like, that's better than, like, someone dropped a ladder on it mm-hmm. or something. Right. But uh, as far as I don't I know why that's was, what just came to my brain. That's horrible. Like, this is just something that is attached to walnut. Um, and no okay. one's been able to prove or disprove either way. It's the, the hot rumor mill in the zoo circuit. Exactly. Um, okay. Move on. Moving on. Uh, so she was born in July of 1982 to some very genetically valuable parents who were actually wild caught because it's the 80s. So unfortunately, uh, they were just caught. It was just part of the practice in China, but they didn't want to <clears throat> potentially let these birds back into the wild because um, they might have parasites and they didn't know exactly where they were caught. And there was international tensions. and Sure, stuff. sure. So they kept them. And it allowed for a lot of genetic diversity to happen. They were very, they produced lots and lots of eggs, including walnut. Unfortunately, uh, they were, instead of being raised by the crane parents, these chicks were then raised by volunteers known as chick mamas. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. walnut uh-huh. imprinted on humans and posed, that poses a problem for her future because she doesn't actually know that she is a crane. <laughs> yeah, saw that coming. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so we zoom forward to 2004. Um, and Chris, they, with another um, keeper on staff, because she's genetically viable, they want to artificially inseminate her and have a viable egg and everything like that because it's very important to be able to continue the species. 
especially since a lot a big problem in the zoo community is having too much interbreeding it's very important to have a genetic diversity um and if this is very stressful when it comes to the bird as well as the crane like as well as the keepers because they don't want to um it they don't want to get hurt first of all and they don't want to hurt the crane um but they went through and she did produce a an egg this that particular year and she which was then given to another um mated pair of white naped cranes however later in this summer after this had gone on um chris crow the keeper of walnut noticed that uh walnut was doing some of the first moves of a mating dance to him Mm-hmm. Through him, right? Through him, and he didn't recognize it at first. He thought that she was just super excited at, to see her, uh, to see him, and it's just like, oh. Well, to be fair, she was. <laughs> yes, yes, she was. Uh, but once he recognized it, he started reciprocating, uh, to Walnut, like bobbing his head and raising his arms and dancing in circles, throwing grass and just doing those things. Apparently, according to uh, this article I read at the Washington Post, honestly, it was the most, it was almost too in-depth, this article, how it went. But she would apparently be unsatisfied when he tried to mimic that unison call <laughs> to, like, the male part of the song, because yeah, he's a crane, human. Crane calls are wild. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are, and there's no way that he would be able to do that (laughs) but uh he realized that that this was an opportunity to allow walnut to consent to the artificial insemination which would reduce stress not only the keepers but on walnut herself so they came up with some sort of uh plan where chris would dance with walnut and she has accepted him as her mate and he has been a mate to walnut and to the point where like it's really like they will build a nest together they give her fall uh fake eggs to um sit on sit on on. uh and she expects him to sit on them too although uh he doesn't (laughs) if he just stands near there apparently that's good enough for walnut um but this has allowed her to contribute to her species numbers and um, and all of her eggs that have been uh, that she's had have been given to um, mated pairs of cranes. Uh, and she's actually gone from being the most genetically viable to uh, she's been a mother and now is a grandmother crane. Uh, hmm. She she's in her 40s now <laughs> and Chris is in his 30s. So talk about having the weirdest, but most, um, the, or, sorry, the strongest job security in the zoo world. Right. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> that how man many, can't ever leave. How, how many years can, uh, can he expect to stay married to Walnut? Um, so she's in her 40s, and from what I could see in, no, no, no. She was 23. Yeah, so she's in her 40s. They easily get to be in their 60s. So he's got a while. I, I heard they're going to pretty soon be moving her over to the, the, the cougar enclosure. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. 
Um, I will also say that uh, that's horrible. Uh, Chris, because of his uh, foresight, I guess, into uh, <laughs> engaging Walnut with this sort of behavior, has actually allowed other cranes that were known to be difficult and un like had an unmated pair. He's been able to replicate this process with other cranes. So, I mean, he's a bit of a player in the crane world, it seems. Does he also right, have yeah. a human on the Ooh. side? I mean, what a conversation that is to have. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't look into that. <laughs> um, but he, those two cranes, like, has moved on. But, oh my uh. gosh. Yeah. So, that's my story this week is Walnut, the white naped crane, and this man, Chris, who has the strongest job security in the zoo world because of a crane that has decided that he is her mate. Thank Amazing. you for that, Rachel. <laughs> Anytime. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, it will be Victoria's turn. So if you've been listening for a little bit, uh, you know that our patron program is going over on Patreon.com. People have started to sign up and join the Society of Strange. And you might be thinking, hey, what's in it for me? Well, you know, at some of our higher levels, you can actually get bonus content. And I wanted to give you a little taste no. of that. No. Because no. I did promise uh, <laughs> no. back in episode 25... But I was going to take Rachel's <laughs> laugh and turn it into a ringtone, and it's now available. Here it is. <laughs> and there it goes again. <laughs> it keeps on going. <laughs> so anyways... <laughs> Rachel is losing it's it. It's hard to tell which is the recording and which is uh, actually Rachel live. So look, if you uh, if you would like to have that as the ringtone on your phone, and let's be honest, who wouldn't? Uh, you can head over to Patreon.com/strangebynature and join the Society of Strange. We've got things like that, another uh, fun stuff, outtakes from the episodes we're putting up, and with some other special content that's going to be coming in uh, down the road here. So head on over to Patreon.com/strangebynature, and uh, thank you to those people who've already become patrons. And uh, let's let's get back to the show. Thanks. So, Kirk, Rachel, have either of you ever been to Yellowstone National Park? No. I was in Yellowstone. Yes, I was there oh, this that's summer. Right, you were. Uh, and and uh, Rachel goal. was dog sitting for me. So, thank you, Rachel. I couldn't have done it without you. Anytime. I have never They're been. Lovely dogs. Oh, I've never been. I would, of course, love to go someday. It is world famous. It's on the bucket list. It is on the bucket list. It's pretty cool. Um, you know, it has its geysers, its wildlife. It's been a place of mm -hmm. trade, gathering, hunting ceremonies for many native peoples for thousands of years. And it was mm -hmm. actually the first national park in the U.S., uh, arguably also the world. So it's been recognized for a really yeah. long time as a special place. Uh, and all of those geysers, of course, have to be fed by some significant geothermal activity. Yes. Are we, are we talking about the super volcano? We are. We're talking about the super volcano. Yay! <laughs> so I'm excited. Some of you Let may have heard of this before. 
There you go. <laughs> um, Yellowstone is located over a hot spot, which is basically a place in the crust of the earth where there's an extra hot plume that brings magma up from deep, um, almost near the core, up closer to the surface than is normal. So Iceland and Hawaii are also famous hot spots. So in most, most cases, the hot spot actually stays in the same place, but as the continental plate moves over the hot spot, the location of the volcanic activity appears to move across the landscape. So if you think about... Oh. Right. Like, like that's Exactly. Hawaii, like so like the Hawaiian yeah. island chain stretches along to the northwest, and the big island is the volcanically active one, is the biggest, and they get smaller and older and more eroded as you go northwest. Okay. Because gotcha. the plate is moving southeast. Right. Um, so the same thing happened happens with Yellowstone. Uh, there's actually a series of volcanic deposits that stretch southwestward for many hundreds of miles across the Snake River Plain, uh, largely in Idaho and Oregon. Okay. And right. and yes, so Yellowstone is actually not only a hotspot, but it is, depending on your definition, a supervolcano. Um, now. You may have heard that it is overdue for an eruption and could erupt at any time and cover most of the country in a thick layer of ash. That has been going around, yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not, it's not untrue. Right. So this is, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is technically possible, <laughs> but it turns out it is not at all probable. So okay. just, just a little geology first. Um, Yellowstone is underlain. It's it's under, underneath it is a magma reservoir. It's about five miles deep, and it's fed by that hot spot. And the crust in that area rises and falls as the magma moves up and up, and then cools. So, mm-hmm. geologists are constantly monitoring how much the crust is swelling and sinking there. And you know, every so often, every every decade or so, it'll start swelling up, and then everybody will be like, oh, the, the super volcano is going to erupt. It's going to yeah. blow! And then it sinks ah! back down. Yeah. Right. But, you know, it is true that Yellowstone has erupted massively in the past. There have been three super eruptions. Um, one was, the oldest one was 2.1 million years ago, the middle one was 1.3 million years ago, and the most recent one was 640,000 years ago. And okay. So a super eruption is considered an eight or more. It is catastrophic. Absolutely. Uh, There's a volcanic explosivity index, which you can think of it sort of like the the Richter scale. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a logarithmic scale. So eight or more is considered a super eruption. (laughs) And that is equal to 1000 or more kilometers cubed of, uh, material ejected cubed <laughs> 1000 cubic kilometers oh. or more that is a <laughs> lot of ash oh dear yeah <laughs> that's fine yeah <laughs> it's fine everything's, everything's fine. fine it's fine yeah. do you uh, maybe i'm jumping ahead here but have, have you when you were looking mm-hmm. into this um is there any like past evidence of how far ma- away from Yellowstone material from Yellowstone has been found geologically? Yes, I did not write that down. Um, but if I remember remembering correctly, it's like 
as far east as kind of the upper Midwest and as far south as like the sort of northern New Mexico, Arizona, that that kind of a okay. a range. Um, now, of course, if you're talking dust, then you're like way past yeah. that probably. But like in terms know. of measurable yeah. ash deposits. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. All right. And when a, when a volcano explodes, it leaves behind a hole in the ground, which geologists call a caldera. And these explosions left calderas that are very large. So the current caldera um, is uh, bigger than the entirety of Yellowstone Park. And so it's 30 by 45 miles. It's <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. That's from the most recent what? one. The one from 2.1 million years ago was almost twice as big. I'm sorry. I'm not a miles. Miles. Yeah. When I when I was there, they they're like, oh, you know, you are now in the caldera, and you're looking around like, what? Yeah. What? No, 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 I'm not. And you're like, well, yeah, the other edge is like 30 uh-huh. miles away. You're like, I can't <laughs> see that. I can't see that far. Like it doesn't. Oh, no. it, it's on a scale that makes absolutely no sense to humans it's whatsoever. so true kirk because you, you think about like i think when most people think about a caldera they think of a volcano like kilauea or they think about um yeah. like crater lake or something volcanoes. like that yeah uh and those are those are on a, on a comprehensible scale but yellowstone really is not <laughs> right. sure no <laughs> no is that big so we have these past super eruptions but Honestly, there's really no sense in which Yellowstone is, quote-unquote, overdue for an eruption. Geologists are not sur- sure that another super eruption will ever happen there. Most volcanoes that have a super eruption don't have them multiple times. And the ones mm-hmm. that do oh, are okay. not on any kind of a regular schedule. <laughs> um, Makes sense. Yeah. So while Yellowstone did have these three super eruptions, it has had many more eruptions that are much, much smaller, similar like to the kind of thing that happens, say, in Iceland frequently. And okay. uh, the most recent one that happened was, was kind of that scale, and that was 70,000 years ago. It was not, like, hugely explosive. Just yesterday. Just yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, good news, any kind of eruption would be preceded by intense, frequent earthquakes, which would break up the surface of the rocks oh, yeah. and eventually clear the way for magnet to come to the surface. So we would have... Plenty of advanced warning. There have been no sign of those. Yellowstone continues to behave as it has for the last 140 years that scientists have been watching. So it's quite possible that Yellowstone may never erupt again. And Mm -hmm. frankly, a super eruption is infinitesimally unlikely. There will be another super eruption somewhere in the world again, which is bad news for us. Oh my. <laughs> but oh. Kirk's in my face is just like God, we just got real big eyes like oh, I'm sorry what <laughs> I mean I, I I don't have this on my list but maybe to put it on there there's been some eruptions that are not I don't know what you classify them not even super eruptions but some very large yeah. eruptions that uh, those are those are unbelievable enough but a super eruption would just be yeah. 
There's a there's a helpful graphic. Uh, I th- it's on the Wikipedia page, I think, for super volcanoes that has um, okay. overlapping circles of various diameters representing the the oh, sure. ash volume for different eruptions for the three Yellowstone eruptions, and then like Mount St. Helens, and I think maybe Mount Pinatubo's in there. You know, a bunch of the kind of more well-known like ones. Krakatoa, probably. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and so you can get a visual representation of just how big a super eruption is compared to some of these others. It's massively, massively bigger. But, you know, and there have only been... I don't know if I want a comparison. Uh, sorry, what, Rachel? I don't know if I want to have that oh. comparison in my brain or not. That... Right. So yeah, there, have, there. there have only been about 60 known super eruptions which have been spread over millions of years. So, frankly, the odds of one happening in our lifetime are, again, extremely low. Mm-hmm. But you never know. Oh, what a cheerful way to end on uh, that! Yay, maybe, yeah. maybe it might happen. Who, who knows? Cool. And Volcanoes. that's what I have for you this week. When we Thank come back, you. you're welcome. When we come back from the break, Kirk will have something delightful for us. Well, back when uh, I started my career as a naturalist, I learned a lot of like facts on the job, right? As you do. And I certainly also yeah, learned a lot in college courses as well before I became a naturalist. But I have to admit, uh, there is a fact that I want to talk about. I'm not sure if I first heard about it in school or on the job, but it was definitely something that I was taught at some point. In fact, it was something I heard repeated frequently, so I likely heard it in more than one place. And this fact was that most birds can't smell, or at least they don't really have much of any sort of sense of smell. Mm -hmm. And vultures are often touted as like the exception in the bird world, that vultures are exceptional because unlike the other birds, they actually have an amazing sense of smell and use it to find their prey. And so I was curious if I could find a good like scientific source on how far away vultures can smell food. but what I mostly came up with in my searches were hundreds of websites touting that vultures can smell carrion at least a mile away. And would you believe it? None of them bother to cite any sources. Ooh, really? When they the say internet that. didn't uh, cite their So it's almost, it's almost like all the websites are just copying each other. So hmm. I finally did find a, a somewhat better article uh, from the Smithsonian Insider magazine uh, claiming that turkey vultures can smell rotting flesh in concentrations as low as a few parts per billion in the air, Whoa. Uh, which is really fascinating. And they uh, didn't have like a classical citation, but they were interviewing uh, like an ornithologist who studies vultures. So I thought that was pretty that good. was pretty good Fairly uh, legit. information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Figured he'd probably be the one who would know. Uh, probably. Now I didn't go too far down the rabbit hole looking for like an original citation on the one mile claim. Uh, But what was really interesting is that almost all the websites I looked at made another claim side by side with the claim about the turkey vulture. Again, almost like they were all copying each other. Um, Mm. They nearly all claimed that the sense of smell that was unique to vultures and that most birds have a terrible sense of smell. And you see this said again and again and again. So. I was taught that same fact that, you know, vultures can smell, but other birds can't. And I think I've probably, when I was a younger naturalist, even probably taught that to some groups I was uh, you know, working with. Right. And 
one common bit of evidence used to support this is great horned owls. And that's, everyone else talks about, oh, you know, if you don't believe me, just look at the great horned owl. They eat skunks. And everyone's like, oh, gross, <laughs> who could possibly eat a skunk? And that somehow, like, put up as proof that birds don't have a sense of smell, that uh, owls eat skunks. Mm, and But owls are stealth yeah. predators. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, but so the idea is that, like, and, 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 you get and they do eat skunks. They wouldn't get right? bothered by the smell, well, but... I mean, but see, that's 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 a human assumption, yeah. right? Because we're, we're 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 like, oh, uh, you know, that skunks smell terrible, so therefore nothing would ever eat that, right? But look at my dogs, right? Yeah, my dogs love to eat scat from other animals. <laughs> if they find a dead animal carcass, like They'll the worse it, it smells, the more they're like, oh, I just gotta roll around in that. It smells so good. So your one dog likes really can't American toads. Yeah, yeah, my one dog does like to nibble on American toads. So, and they taste terrible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this idea that uh, they that they would care about a smell that we care, of course, is not necessarily true. And also, great horned owls are incredibly talented hunters, and they can actually kill a skunk before it even sprays. Yeah, so that's, what that's what I Victoria, meant. What yeah, you were kind of getting at, right? Yeah. So, and also when they you know pick it apart, it's like, well, don't don't eat that part that's going to have the the, uh, the, the, I forget the name of the actual mm-hmm. chemical. Yeah, I actually just saw something. Thing. There's some like, there's some Instagram that's basically people posting pictures of dead animals that they find, <laughs> which I, right. I came across the other day referred to in some article that I was reading. And um, one of the pictures posted was somebody found just the, the scent glands the of scent a skunk glands? that had yeah. been left behind by whatever yeah. predator ate it. Which Fair. right there would suggest that maybe the birds can smell, I, and that's why they're not I, eating that. Yeah, or right. Like, so that might have been a coyote. We don't know. It was a bird on that case, but sure. Yeah, sh- sure, right. sure, sure. Uh, so, um, we're, we're, you know, there's this idea out there that most birds can't smell, uh, but there really hasn't been much research on bird smell. We've just made a lot of assumptions, and is sort of this is probably one of like the reoccurring themes on this show that assumptions are bad in science, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, they are. Very so much, yes. Where, where all this is leading takes us back a few episodes where I was talking about how researchers figured out how birds use stars to migrate. Remember? Yeah. I did promise at the end of that that I would share more interesting research on migration, and that time has arrived. Wait, we're what? not talking about bird smell? We are talking about bird smell. We are talking oh. about bird smell. What? So... Researchers, I know, I know. Researchers were once mocked for even wanting to study birds' ability to smell. It was so strongly believed, even by like ornithologists, that birds cannot smell. And a few scientists, though, have shown that many species have absolutely incredible abilities to smell and not just vultures. In fact, some people are thinking that most birds have the ability to smell. Uh, there's been a number of researchers working on this, but I, I, where I first heard about it was an amazing bird smell story back in 2010 when scientists with the Max Planck Institute published an amazing study. So here's what researchers did. They captured 24 adult and 24 juvenile catbirds, okay. and they divided them into uh, an experiment, both like experiment and like a variable group and a control mm-hmm. group, right? Mm-hmm. In this experimental group, uh, a number of them had saline sprayed in their noses, 
which would temporarily knock out their sense of smell. They'd get it back later, but it, they, they, they couldn't smell anything. Mm -hmm. And then the control group, of course, had nothing done to change their sense of smell. Now, the researchers, this was, uh, this was in New Jersey where they were doing this. <laughs> and the researchers also caught adult catbirds in Illinois uh, and okay. had them basically overnighted to New Jersey to join up <laughs> with the other catbirds they had. Uh -huh. And uh, again, they did the same thing where they're divided into a group that can smell and a group that could not smell. So all of the birds were then fitted with radio transmitters so they could be tracked after being released to see what happened. And I, I should point out also, this was right during the middle of fall migration. So they weren't just going to release these birds and have them sit around in a bush. They were like, we got to get out of here. We have to migrate, right? Okay. So what happened was really interesting. Now, you would think if birds could not smell, nothing would happen. Because it wouldn't matter if you, you know, knocked out their non-existent sense of smell. Right. Uh, I, do, I do need you, though, to picture the state of New Jersey. Uh, it is basically a giant peninsula mm -hmm. right on the ocean there, right? To the east, you have the Atlantic Ocean. And to the west, you have the Delaware River, which slowly gets wider and wider and wider and becomes Delaware Bay, which separates New Jersey from the rest of the land there to the west. Now experienced adult cappers in New Jersey have learned that their best route during migration is not to head due south during migration. Because if you head south down the Jersey Shore, you end up at Cape May. And once you get to Cape May, you either have to cross the bay at a very wide spot or backtrack north up the bay looking for a narrower place to cross. And adult birds uh, actually, you know, head south dur or actually head southwest during migration in new jersey hmm. most most of the cappers they're looking at they all went southwest over toward the bay basically directly to the narrowest spot they could cross so they would not have to cross delaware bay okay. now adult birds that were in the control group in the experiment did exactly that when they released them they headed southwest as expected but uh, the ones that could not smell did not head southwest, they headed due south. Almost like they were having to rely on just some other migration cues to know to go south, but they didn't go southwest like they should have. Mm -hmm. uh, they essentially acted like juvenile birds uh, that had not yet learned the best migration route. Mm -hmm. So it seems pretty clear that smell does play a mm -hmm. role in what route the birds are taking. And now birds from Illinois had an interesting reaction as well. Uh, the birds that could not smell also just headed straight south. The birds that could smell either headed due west or they went southwest. Huh. Now, it's not really clear what they were smelling because it definitely wasn't like their experience telling them, oh, head, you know, toward the right. bay because they, they're from Illinois. They right. wouldn't they know wouldn't that. Know. But <clears throat> something about them having a sense of smell... Uh, maybe told them that due south was not a good direction to go or somehow um, it played into it somehow. And so we do know that that sense of smell made them go a different way, which is really, really fascinating. So this study and many, many more like it uh, show that many birds actually have amazing senses of smell. And what I think is super cool, because there are lots of experiments out there to show that birds like have sense of smells. There's more and more of them out there. But what I think is mm -hmm. the super amazing part about this is not only do they have that sense of smell, they are using that sense of smell to migrate. It is one of the senses they use for migration, which 
is just something that people could not even imagine that that would be something that would play in. But, you know, when animals have a sense of smell, uh, they're going to use whatever senses they have to aid them mm -hmm. in getting to where they need to go. So it is really amazing that we're finding out this new stuff about birds. And uh, I just wanted to share a little bit about what that research was and how researchers decided to test out if birds do use their sense of smell during migration. Because I thought it was a really kind of clever bit of research that those researchers came up with. Yeah. Super cool. I did not know that. Thank you, Kirk. I didn't either. That's amazing. Thank you, Kirk. You are welcome. Yeah. Uh, smell and birds is a really strange thing. I may have a little bit more to say about it uh, in a future episode. I would be shocked. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for stopping by this week, and uh, we'll see everybody next Talk week. Next thanks, week. everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.